Chapter Ten A of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Ten A of the Mode of Voting. The question of greatest moment in regard to modes of voting is that of secrecy or publicity, and to this we will at once address ourselves. It would be a great mistake to make the discussion turn on sentimentalities about skulking or cowardice. Secrecy is justifiable in many cases, imperative in some, and it is not cowardice to seek protection against evils which are honestly avoidable. Nor can it be reasonably maintained that no cases are conceivable in which secret voting is preferable to public. But I must contend that these cases, in affairs of a political character, are the exception, not the rule. The present is one of the many instances in which, as I have already had occasion to remark, the spirit of an institution, the impression it makes on the mind of the citizen, is one of the most important parts of its operation. The spirit of vote by ballot, the interpretation likely to be put on it in the mind of the elector, is that the suffrage is given to him for himself, for his particular use and benefit, and not as a trust for the public. For if it is indeed a trust, if the public are entitled to his vote, are not they entitled to know his vote? This false and pernicious impression may well be made on the generality, since it has been made on most of those who of late years have been conspicuous advocates of the ballot. The doctrine was not so understood by its earlier promoters. But the effect of a doctrine on the mind is best shown not in those who form it, but in those who are formed by it. Mr. Bright and his school of Democrats think themselves greatly concerned in maintaining that the franchise is what they term a right, not a trust. Now this one idea, taking root in the general mind, does a moral mischief outweighing all the good that the ballot could do, at the highest possible estimate of it. In whatever way we define or understand the idea of a right, no person can have a right, except in the purely legal sense, to power over others. Every such power which he is allowed to possess is morally, in the fullest force of the term, a trust. But the exercise of any political function, either as an elector or as a representative, is power over others. Those who say that the suffrage is not a trust, but a right, will scarcely accept the conclusions to which their doctrine leads. If it is a right, if it belongs to the voter for his own sake, on what ground can we blame him for selling it? or using it to recommend himself to any one whom it is his interest to please. A person is not expected to consult exclusively the public benefit in the use he makes of his house, or his three per cent stock, or anything else to which he really has a right. The suffrage is indeed due to him, among other reasons, as a means to his own protection, but only against treatment from which he is equally bound, so far as depends on his vote, to protect every one of his fellow-citizens. His vote is not a thing in which he has an option. It has no more to do with his personal wishes than the verdict of a juryman. It is strictly a matter of duty. He is bound to give it according to his best and most conscientious opinion of the public good. Whoever has any other idea of it is unfit to have the suffrage. Its effect on him is to pervert, not to elevate his mind. Instead of opening his heart to an exalted patriotism and the obligation of public duty, it awakens and nourishes in him the disposition to use a public function for his own interest, pleasure, or caprice. 
the same feelings and purposes on a humbler scale which actuate a despot and oppressor now an ordinary citizen in any public position or on whom there devolves any social function is certain to think and feel respecting the obligations it imposes on him exactly what society appears to think and feel in conferring it what seems to be expected from him by society forms a standard which he may fall below but which he will seldom rise above and the interpretation which he is almost sure to put upon secret voting is that he is not bound to give his vote with any reference to those who are not allowed to know how he gives it but may bestow it simply as he feels inclined this is the decisive reason why the argument does not hold from the use of the ballot in clubs and private societies to its adoption in parliamentary elections a member of a club is really what the elector falsely believes himself to be under no obligation to consider the wishes or interests of any one else he declares nothing by his vote but that he is or is not willing to associate in a manner more or less close with a particular person this is a matter on which by universal admission his own pleasure or inclination is entitled to decide and that he should be able to so decide it without risking a quarrel is best for everybody the rejected person included an additional reason rendering the ballot unobjectionable in these cases is that it does not necessarily or naturally lead to lying the persons concerned are of the same class or rank and it would be considered improper in one of them to press another with questions as to how he had voted it is far otherwise in parliamentary elections and is likely to remain so as long as the social relations exist which produce the demand for the ballot as long as one person is sufficiently the superior of another to think himself entitled to dictate his vote and while this is the case silence or an evasive answer is certain to be construed as proof that the vote given has not been that which was desired in any political election even by universal suffrage and still more obviously in the case of a restricted suffrage the voter is under an absolute moral obligation to consider the interest of the public not his private advantage and give his vote to the best of his judgment exactly as he would be bound to do if he were the sole voter and the election depended upon him alone this being admitted it is at least a prima facie consequence that the duty of voting like any other public duty should be performed under the eye and criticism of the public every one of whom has not only an interest in its performance but a good title to consider himself wronged if it is performed otherwise than honestly and carefully undoubtedly neither this nor any other maxim of political morality is absolutely inviolable it may be overruled by still more cogent considerations but its weight is such that the cases which admit of a departure from it must be of a strikingly exceptional character it may unquestionably be the fact that if we attempt by publicity to make the voter responsible to the public for his vote he will practically be made responsible for it to some powerful individual whose interest is more opposed to the general interest of the community than that of the voter himself would be if by the shield of secrecy he were released from responsibility altogether when this is the condition in a high degree of a large proportion of voters the ballot may be the smaller evil when the voters are slaves anything may be tolerated which enables them to throw off the yoke the strongest case for the ballot is when the mischievous power of the few over the many is increasing 
In the decline of the Roman Republic, the reasons for the ballot were irresistible. The oligarchy was yearly becoming richer and more tyrannical, the people poorer and more dependent, and it was necessary to erect stronger and stronger barriers against such abuse of the franchise as rendered it but an instrument the more in the hands of unprincipled persons of consequence. As little can it be doubted that the ballot, so far as it existed, had a beneficial operation in the Athenian constitution. Even in the least unstable of the Grecian commonwealths, freedom might be for the time destroyed by a single unfairly obtained popular vote, and though the Athenian voter was not sufficiently dependent to be habitually coerced, he might have been bribed or intimidated by the lawless outrages of some knot of individuals, such as were not uncommon even at Athens among the youth of rank and fortune. The ballot was in these cases a valuable instrument of order, and conduced to the eunomia by which Athens was distinguished among the ancient commonwealths. But in the more advanced states of modern Europe, and especially in this country, the power of coercing voters has declined and is declining and bad voting is now less to be apprehended from the influences to which the voter is subject at the hands of others than from the sinister interests and discreditable feelings which belong to himself, either individually or as a member of a class. To secure him against the first, at the cost of removing all restraint from the last, would be to exchange a smaller and a diminishing evil for a greater and increasing one. On this topic, and on the question generally as applicable to England at the present date, I have, in a pamphlet on parliamentary reform, expressed myself in terms which, as I do not feel that I can improve upon, I will venture here to transcribe. Thirty years ago it was still true that in the election of members of Parliament the main evil to be guarded against was that which the ballot would exclude—coercion by landlords, employers, and customers. At present, I conceive, a much greater source of evil is the selfishness or the selfish partialities of the voter himself. A base and mischievous vote is now, I am convinced, much oftener given from the voter's personal interest, or class interest, or some mean feeling in his own mind, than from any fear of consequences at the hands of others. And to these influences the ballot would enable him to yield himself up free from all sense of shame or responsibility. In times not long gone by, the higher and richer classes were in complete possession of the government. Their power was the master grievance of the country. The habit of voting at the bidding of an employer or of a landlord was so firmly established that hardly anything was capable of shaking it but a good strong popular enthusiasm, seldom known to exist but in a good cause. A vote given in opposition to those influences was therefore in general an honest, a public-spirited vote, but in any case, and by whatever motive dictated, it was almost sure to be a good vote, for it was a vote against the monster evil, the overruling influence of oligarchy. Could the voter at that time have been enabled, with safety to himself, to exercise his privilege freely, even though neither honestly nor intelligently, it would have been a great gain to reform for it would have broken the yoke of the then ruling power in the country, the power which had created and which maintained all that was bad in the institutions and the administration of the state, the power of landlords and borough-mongers. The ballot was not adopted, but the progress of circumstances has done and is doing more and more in this respect the work of the ballot. 
Both the political and the social state of the country, as they affect this question, have greatly changed, and are changing every day. The higher classes are not now masters of the country. A person must be blind to all the signs of the times who could think that the middle classes are as subservient to the higher, or the working classes as dependent on the higher and middle as they were a quarter of a century ago. The events of that quarter of a century have not only taught each class to know its own collective strength, but have put the individuals of a lower class in a condition to show a much bolder front to those of a higher. In a majority of cases, the vote of the electors, whether in opposition to or in accordance with the wishes of their superiors, is not now the effect of coercion, which there are no longer the same means of applying, but the expression of their own personal or political partialities. The very vices of the present electoral system are a proof of this. The growth of bribery, so loudly complained of, and the spread of the contagion to places formerly free from it, are evidence that the local influences are no longer paramount, that the electors now vote to please themselves and not other people. There is, no doubt, in counties and in the smaller boroughs, a large amount of servile dependence still remaining, but the temper of the times is adverse to it, and the force of events is constantly tending to diminish it. A good tenant can now feel that he is as valuable to his landlord as his landlord is to him. A prosperous tradesman can afford to feel independent of any particular customer. At every election the votes are more and more the voters' own. It is their minds, far more than their personal circumstances, that now require to be emancipated. They are no longer passive instruments of other men's will, mere organs for putting power into the hands of a controlling oligarchy. The electors themselves are becoming the oligarchy. Exactly in proportion as the vote of the elector is determined by his own will, and not by that of somebody who is his master, his position is similar to that of a member of Parliament, and publicity is indispensable. So long as any portion of the community are unrepresented, the argument of the Chartists against ballot in conjunction with a restricted suffrage is unassailable. The present electors, and the bulk of those whom any probable reform bill will add to the number, are the middle class, and have as much a class interest, distinct from the working classes, as landlords or great manufacturers. Were the suffrage extended to all skilled laborers, even these would, or might, still have a class interest distinct from the unskilled. Suppose it extended to all men. Suppose that what was formerly called by the misapplied name of universal suffrage, and now by the silly title of manhood suffrage, became the law. The voters would still have a class interest as distinguished from women. Suppose that there were a question before the legislature specifically affecting women, as whether women should be allowed to graduate at universities, whether the mild penalties inflicted on ruffians who beat their wives daily almost to death's door should be exchanged for something more effectual. Or suppose that any one should propose, in the British Parliament, that one state after another in America is enacting, not by a mere law, but by a provision of their revised constitutions, that married women should have a right to their own property. Are not a man's wife and daughters entitled to know whether he votes for or against a candidate who will support these propositions? End of chapter 10a. Recording by Bill Borst.